You're listening to The Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers. We look forward to having you join us at the table. Okay, so thanks so much, everybody, for joining us today. It's been a while since we last convened to share Simpson's perspective on the regulatory environment for private fund managers. And as you'll hear in today's quick hit installment of our Regulatory Roundtable podcast, this feels to us like a pretty opportune time to just step back and take a real bird's eye view of the current SEC environment. And look, if you think about the first two years of the Gensler era, I think they were defined by a pretty relentless pace of rulemaking that was focused, in fact, targeted at the private fund space. Our view, and we'll talk with you a little bit about it today, is the next two years are going to be remembered as a return to private funds as a marquee exam and enforcement priority. So to help talk through these issues, I'm joined by my partners, David Blass, Megan Kelly, and Mark Berger. Our conversation today is really going to fall into three chapters. David is going to get us going with, again, a sort of bird's eye view of the macro view of what's going on at the commission from a policy and rulemaking perspective. We'll then pivot to Megan. Megan will take a spin through what's become an increasingly aggressive, challenging exam program. And then Mark and I will close things out by just sharing a few thoughts on the state of play on the enforcement front. And again, to preview, if the funds industry has managed the past couple of years to stay off the front page, to stay off the hot seat, we think that's about to change. So with that, I'm going to kick it to David to get us started. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. As you said, we've had a, a flurry of SEC rulemaking proposals, a few adoptions. Most recently, the SEC adopted uh, changes to Form PF. Those changes, for the most part, were favorable towards the private equity industry. The original proposal for the changes that were adopted called for reporting of events on a one-business-day or two-business-day cycle. The SEC uh, realized that Form PF is really meant to uh, inform uh, regulators from a systemic risk perspective, and many of the events that the SEC proposed to be reported to FSOC and the SEC on a one-business-day basis really don't impact systemic risk. On the docket to come, we just uh, closed the comment period on a major rule proposal, what I refer to as the custody rule proposal, what the SEC uh, calls the safeguarding proposal. It's a complete overhaul of the SEC's custody rule for investment advisors, very wide-ranging consequences under that proposal. We just participated earlier this week in a D.C. bar event focused on that proposal with an SEC staffer uh, as a participant in, on that bar event. And a lot of the comments from the comment file and, and from that uh, panel discussion were around the impact of the proposal on availability of qualified custodians. The proposal would push out obligations through the investment advisor to qualified custodians to basically agree not to be indemnified by qualified custodian clients, a radical element to that proposal. It has many other uh, aspects to it that are that are problematic, including pushing out custody rule to all assets, including, for example, infrastructure projects. If a private equity fund is invested in an infrastructure project, technically under this proposal, if it were adopted, that project, the infrastructure project itself, would be subject to the custody rule proposal. Today, 
the custody rule applies to funds and securities only if the rule is adopted as proposed, it would apply to all investment advisory assets. The custody rule trigger would be the exercise of investment discretion, which is new as well. Today, the trigger for custody rule application is if an advisor has the ability to obtain assets uh, under the proposal. It's if you just have investment discretion. So that's a, a proposal. The comment period just closed in May. We'll see what the SEC does about it. Hopefully, they take it as a learning uh, experience. In an ideal world, the SEC assembly would abandon that proposal because it's very, very problematic. But you know, we don't live in an ideal world, so if uh, they don't abandon it, it feels like there's a need to repropose with a, a bit more nuanced and uh, and well-informed uh, changes based on on market realities. Other rulemakings that have been proposed, and we're expecting them to come down the pipeline pretty soon. We have round two of Form PF. There are proposals for cybersecurity and vendor oversight. Both of those have the potential to be very impactful. And then we have the biggie, the private fund advisor rule, which we're expecting any day. I would expect that private fund advisor adopting release in the rule, certainly to adopt rules requiring enhanced or additional reporting of performance and other information to limited partners. There are many controversial aspects of that proposal, including restricting side letter practices that are very common today that might get dialed back a bit because I think the limited partner community objected to many of those. And then, you know, the really big part of that big proposal is the restriction, the proposed restriction on private fund advisors' abilities to obtain pretty standard assurances from limited partners that they won't sue. The proposal would restrict uh, standard indemnification provisions that are very much market practice today, so really interfering with uh, commercially negotiated terms through a a rulemaking. So it's uh, interesting times to watch. We'd like to talk just briefly about process. So what happens at the SEC, the staff is tasked with creating a proposal. They spend a lot of time working on the contents of the proposal, explaining how it works, working with colleagues in the Division of Economic Risk Analysis on the economic impacts of the, of the proposal, put out for comment. Commenters uh, obviously comment, and we've had a lot of comments on all the ones I've talked about. The staff reads through them, analyzes them, summarizes the comments, and then prepares that summary for key decision makers. There's a back and forth with key decision makers, and then the staff is tasked with writing up an adopting release, and that's where we are right now, I think, on many of these items. That adopting release goes through the same process the proposal did. You craft the contents, what the decision makers are looking for, for outcomes of the of the rulemaking. You explain how it works. That's the adopting release. You work with the Division of Economic Risk Analysis. And all of that is going on behind the scenes, kind of blind to the public. And then the SEC comes out with a, probably an open meeting where the recommendation from the staff is presented to the full commission for a vote. That process can be done at the staff level One thing that might cause a little bit of delay is what you said, Mike, which is the focus on exams and enforcement, because while the staff is in investment management, not necessarily working that much on exams and enforcement, just working on the rulemaking, the commission itself is working on especially enforcement matters. And they only have so much time to read all of the materials that come to them. So sometimes the rulemaking process can slow down a bit when enforcement really ramps up, which seems to be part of the environment right now at the SEC. I think the agenda on the exams is very aggressive, in my opinion. 
So maybe, Megan, if I could turn it over to you to kind of walk through what we're seeing on the exam front, the agenda, and, and generally what, what you're seeing. Yeah, thanks, David. As both you and Mike noted, I totally agree. It's quite an active exam environment. On process, we're seeing a very granular focus by the staff on a variety of topics. The amount of document requests has been extensive, and we're seeing a lot of interviews. And on substance, I'll give a sense of some of the top focus areas we are seeing in exams. One priority area is certainly expense allocation. Generally, the staff is expecting more and more detailed disclosure about the categories of expenses that are to be borne by the funds. The staff is also drilling down on expense allocation as relates to co-invest vehicles and is really fly-specking disclosures and, and policies in that regard. And just to highlight a few categories of expenses that are in particular focus, third-party consultants, affiliated service providers, meals and entertainment, travel, compliance-related expenses. Another clear priority area for the staff is calculation of management fees, in particular with respect to the interplay of write-downs, write-offs, and dispositions. This is actually a topic the Division of Examinations has been speaking about for some time. For instance, back in January 2022 in a risk alert, it also appeared in both the 2022 and 2023 exam priorities. And actually, the Division of Enforcement settled a case last September on this topic of calculating management fees and connections with write-downs. And in that settlement, one focus was on the term disposition per the LPA because the management fee in the post-commitment period was to be reduced for investments that had been subject to a disposition. And there, disposition was was defined to include any write-down in the value of individual portfolio securities. So again, a lot of activity and focus on management fees, disclosures, and calculations, of course, vary, but you can expect the staff to dig in on the particular disclosures and practices during an exam. That's super interesting. So if you're in a harsh exam environment, right, and the golden rule has traditionally been outside counsel don't face the staff, they work behind the scenes, do you have a different view? Like if issues become more challenging on an exam, do you continue to think it's better to stay behind the scenes or surface with the exam staff as outside lawyers? I generally think it makes sense to stay behind the scenes, but working very closely with the client in the exam on the responses being submitted and putting the best foot forward with disclosures and other items as possible during the course of an exam and just staying in very close contact. One exception to that general rule that I've experienced is if you get bogged down on an exam on a particular issue, for example, a Reg BI and the need to prepare this form CRS. If you're a private fund manager, you don't do it normally. Sometimes you can get like specific issues that the examiners get bogged down into. And I've had experience where I've been pulled in and and it can be a little helpful to have kind of a purported expert come in to talk over the issue with the staff just to kind of hopefully dislodge the issue, or at least the staff has a point, better understanding it. That's a great point. Because the concern is if you bring in outside counsel, do you think that does it lend more credence to there being something there, right? And there's a natural reluctance to do that, which makes total sense. But it sounds like there are good opportunities to bring in experts really just to help explain things in a way that might uh, resonate you know, better with the staff. It's a good point. Yes, very good. And I would say turning to another area to flag is, of course, the new marketing rule. So the compliance date was back in November 2022. And we've been seeing since then the staff testing the extent to which advisors have been updating policies to incorporate the new marketing rule. 
checking if advertisements since November are compliant. We also understand several exam initiatives are kicking off to specifically focus on various elements of the new marketing rule over the next year. So everyone's staying tuned for that. And just to close with a couple other topics of focus and exams, we're seeing other potential conflicts or fiduciary duty issues such as in GP-led secondaries or cross-transactions or continuation funds. That's getting a lot of focus. Custody is also a focus. David mentioned, you know, the custody rule um, being proposed, so it's not a surprise custody continues to be in focus. Then, of course, as always, the advisor's compliance program itself and policies and procedures. And just one note on policies and procedures, a more common question now pertains to advisors' policies about electronic communications, including texts, IMs, etc. For instance, what steps the advisor takes to ensure that supervised persons use approved channels to conduct business. One process point, Megan, I'm curious if you're starting to see examiners back out in the field on site or are most exams still being conducted largely remotely? Uh, yeah, so I understand there's going to be a turning point soon and I think examiners are getting back out in the field. Not in all cases, we still have quite a few remote exams, but I think uh, that's starting to change a bit. Megan, you, you mentioned marketing rule, which strikes a nerve with me. I think I still have some PTSD from the marketing rule implementation period. You mentioned uh, a number of exams coming. Have you seen marketing be a focus, the marketing rule compliance be a focus of existing exams? And then, you know, you go through this, like for this large number of exams you mentioned, what's the likely outcome that we should expect from that? Right. So I think the first wave was a marketing rule overlay to existing exams, as, as you point out. And I think it's very likely risk alert and maybe some enforcement actions could be coming soon from that kind of initial step of testing compliance with the new marketing rule. And then separately, as more advisors are getting more advertisements out there and the staff has seen more materials, I understand they're going to be really testing substantiation, performance, testimonials, endorsements, etc. And after that, it would be very likely, again, another risk alert could come out and potentially enforcement actions coming out of that, um, depending on practices the staff observes. Good segue to enforcement, maybe now. So I think from a big picture perspective on that, just continuing this thread, we're seeing, we're seeing enforcement continuing to be very demanding. The staff has become fairly rigid and tight on deadlines, for example, you know, whether it's a subpoena response or, or written submissions or factual presentations, fewer extensions are being granted there. And when you think about it, we're at, you know, early June. Now is about the time that senior enforcement staff, you know, often a trickle-down effect from the enforcement director or the deputy director, but staff start to look at their dockets, their dockets of investigations in, in New York, which I've got probably the most familiarity with. You know, you have staff that have hundreds of investigations on their dockets, and then they start tagging which ones can be brought across the finish line for fiscal year 2023. And the end of September may seem like a long time from now, nearly four months away. When you consider the typical cycle that an investigation, even a mature investigation, takes from the time of, you know, a handshake resolution to a published order, really now is the time that they're focusing on steps to reach those handshake resolutions to allow for the period of divisions review, calendaring, commission review, and and everything else um, that can take north of two months, three months for, 
for complex matters. So I think we're going to start to see even more pressure now as we're approaching a fiscal year end. I'll make three maybe subject matter observations on what I think some focus areas are, and we'll keep those brief. First, crypto. So yesterday and today, this morning, consistent with the SEC's continued you know, vigorous approach to enforcement, we saw, I think what were undoubtedly probably the most significant matters brought this year in the crypto space, and frankly, as it pertains to digital exchanges, maybe the most significant matters arguably to date, uh, both litigated actions, each charging document, more than 100 pages today, Coinbase, allegedly operating as an unregistered exchange uh, broker and clearing agent, and yesterday, the filing against Binance and its founder, another sweeping complaint where the SEC alleges everything from operating as an unregistered exchange to misleading investors about the integrity of Binance's systems to mishandling customer funds. An interesting theme, I think, that's developed in this space, and we've seen in a few of these matters, and particularly with these companies, rightly or wrongly expressing frustration by the firms uh, who are trying to work things out with the SEC's divisions, trying to work out the SEC concerns, but then you have a litigated action that gets filed. So, you know, stay tuned on those two and, you know, likely for more in this space. Hey, Mark, on that point, I mean, Binance and Coinbase are kind of the pillars of the crypto economy. Do you feel like these cases sort of put some oxygen back in the room for the staff, enforcement staff in particular, to do other things now that the big two have been charged? Certainly, you know, when you look at the teams that were on both of these cases, it was taking up a decent amount of the crypto units bandwidth. There are lots of other investigations that are still out there. I think certainly these two day after day or in seriatim planned filings, a big thing to get off their chest for sure. There's more investigations to come, but maybe some breathing room now. I mean, these two you know, had been in the making for months, if not years. Second area, insider trading. I think one trend we're seeing is an uptick in the staff's focus on MNPI and, and trading investigations. Some of the inquiries we're seeing on the public company side appear to be generated from the FINRA referrals. Others, especially where advisors are involved, may be from exams or also from FINRA referrals, but it seems like a push on this front. And finally, a third area involving SPACs. And this is probably a fairly specific area, but in some ways most relevant to the to the listeners tuned into this podcast. We've seen three settled enforcement actions in the in the past year. Uh, actually, two of those in settled enforcement actions were just in April and May, so very recent, against investment advisors for failing to disclose conflicts of interest regarding its personnel's ownership of sponsors of SPACs into which those advisors advise clients to invest. And so you have three three nearly identically worded orders where the SEC took aim at advisors of private funds who formed multiple SPACs whose sponsors were owned by the fund personnel and therefore you know, were entitled to a portion of the compensation uh, the SPAC sponsors received uh, upon completion of the SPAC's business combination. And the facts in those matters found that the advisor invested assets of private funds in certain transactions that facilitated the SPAC's business combination and didn't disclose the ownership interest. Penalties in those matters range from one to one and a half million, but we all know in this area, 
you know, while a penalty is certainly important, uh, the reputational sting suffered by the named party really has meaningful consequences. And, you know, Mike, we're not seeing the SPAC activity that we saw, you know, two years ago. These are likely investigations, and I think you'd probably agree, that have been in the work since, you know, 2021, when there was a a clear focus um, on SPACs. And really, the SEC is probably just cleaning out some of that inventory now. Yeah, I agree. I feel like these cases may be the last chapter, maybe one or two more to come in the SPAC space, but probably that's it. Mark, on the insider trading topic, do you expect more cases kind of in the ARES style, where it was focused on policies and procedures, or more focused on substantive or actual insider trading violations? The investigations that we're seeing are more on trading issues as opposed to, you know, prevention of the misuse of material non-public information. ARES was certainly a shot across the bow and had a big effect on the industry, I think lots of practices changed, and so the case, you know, served its purpose in some ways, but the investigations that we're seeing are trading-focused and many arising out of FINRA referrals. Mark, can I ask a process question? You mentioned Coinbase. Coinbase published their Wells Notice response. I read it. I thought it was actually very, very well-written, compelling to me. Obviously, it didn't stop the SEC. How common is that? Like, what take that step to publish your your response. And, and also, is it problematic if you put yourself back at the SEC? Like, how do you think about that? Pretty unusual to be able to read a Wells response that's not one that, you know, you've written yourself for your client, unless you're at the SEC, where you get to read quite a few of those. So an unusual step for sure. But there have been some unusual, I think, uh, PR um, plays in that uh, investigation, um, e- even when there was a an indication that they were going to get wells. There were some public statements that, you know, Coinbase released as well. So that just may be part of the playbook of trying to get the message across that we've been trying to work things out with the staff for years and the various divisions. And here we are under heavy enforcement scrutiny about to get charged. So uh, unusual, but not unusual for their playbook so far. All right. So with that, I think excellent context. I think we'll close out by talking a little bit about enforcement interest and how it's starting to dovetail and focus on the private fund space. And I think if you're going to talk about that, you start with the asset management unit, which obviously sits within enforcement. And, you know, many of us think enforcement units, the specialized units, those are really the lifeblood of the enforcement program. They're specialized. They know the industry. They live in the space. And, The size and the composition of the units waxes and wanes, though, over the years, right? So that's often an important signal of commission priorities. So if you look in the last two, three years, right, it would be the crypto and cyber unit has grown in size, grown in headcount. Five or six years ago, AMU, which again is typically the unit that knows the most about the private fund space, the unit that brought the landmark cases six or seven years ago, it shrunk quite a bit, right, in recent years. And again, I think that was reflective of where PE private funds fit in on the on the enforcement priority, but that's changing. And that's one of the messages we wanted to share today. There's new leadership in the AMU. There's a new mandate to grow the unit, headcount. And I think most importantly, to go out and aggressively bring cases. And in a sense, that's kind of back to basics, right? And none of that is occurring in a vacuum, right? So you look at the size of the unit, you look at how it's being staffed, but what is leadership saying about priorities? And it's really, to me, 
not a surprise, and Mark, I'm interested in your view, that really recently, in the past couple of weeks, Gerbeer has made a point of giving speeches where he's saying private funds, private equity, that is a, quote, substantive priority area for us, talking about fees and expenses. And from my perspective, you don't say that unless you mean it, and you don't say it unless you have cases to validate it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, agree. Fee- and fees and expenses is obviously not new. What is new is putting yourself out there on it. And you're not going to put yourself out there on it unless you have fairly mature matters that are ready to go so you can back up those statements. So I do see a purposeful shift in in tone and appointing that we just didn't see in the first you know, two years of the administration on the industry. So if that's an important signal, then maybe we close with two sort of observations. And the first one goes back to Megan's remark. So new investigations, new priorities, you can give a speech, but they don't come out of thin air. You have to find the cases. And in the case of AMU, they've always had a really strong built-in advantage in terms of sourcing referrals from the exam program. And in particular, the private funds unit, which focuses on on hedge and PE. And so if we are in an environment where private funds are an enforcement priority, I think that means that thin line between a very challenging exam, but one that you can successfully contain, and one that spills over to an enforcement referral can become really difficult. And so I think, Megan, that puts a lot of pressure on how to softly land an exam, say, when you have big expense reimbursement you're thinking about making as a way to potentially stave off a referral when the staff is second-guessing you. Do you feel more pressured today on those questions, knowing that enforcement is more likely than not to pick that up? Yes, definitely. I think it's come up and, you know, doing a proactive or voluntary expense reimbursement with interest and some disclosure can often go a very long way uh, if it's done right. Absolutely. All right. So last thought. So, and this is really in the spirit of everything old becoming new again, sweeps, enforcement sweeps seem to be back in vogue again as a really potent case generation tool. And I I think partly that's a function of math, because if you go out on a sweep and target 20 firms, the odds are you're going to find two or three or four that have some high quality lead to pursue. And there's endless cycles of texting sweeps And I think, Mark, one question for you, what's the sort of internal vetting that a sweep gets or should get before it gets off the ground? Because it does have important impact. If you're a firm that's done nothing wrong and you're in an enforcement sweep, you're in an investigation, what happens behind the scenes? Depending on how large the sweep is, it can go all the way up to the enforcement director. And depending on, you know, some of the larger ones, if they're initiatives and if you're going to be making concessions in the form of initiatives, those might actually um, get vetted with some of the commissioners as well or the chair. I think for a pure enforcement sweep only that is regionally focused, that can go up through the regional director. These national you know, sweeps that we're seeing certainly are going to be brought to Sanjay and Gerbeer's attention. Okay. Well, that's a ray of hope, and maybe that's a good way to end this. So as ever, thank you for your time. If you have any questions, comments, please reach out. And thanks very much for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, 
please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast. And Simpson Thatcher expressly disclaims all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher.